Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of an airborne hot rod from hell and the American war hero that was able to tame it. It's the story of the GBR-1 racing plane from the 1930s and how a decade before he became a World War II hero, Jimmy Doolittle tamed what is the equivalent of a fuel altered in the sky. This is the story of how the perfect man for the job tamed an imperfect flying machine. The tiny GB racer was nearly all engine, and it was very difficult to handle. One pilot who flew it was the Schneider winner, Jimmy Doolittle. If you take an airplane up in the air and just set everything just right, the airplane will fly itself. The unique thing about the GB is that if you took it up into the air, no matter what you did, if you let go of it, it took over. And apparently in an effort to destroy itself, you would it. Those are the words of an aged Jimmy Doolittle who lived to be 96 years old. And Jimmy Doolittle's life is one of the most intriguing of the 20th century. And we're going to be talking about one small part of his life that occurred in the early 1930s when he was a pioneering pilot, an aviator, and a guy who exhibited a level of fearlessness that we have often highlighted here on the Dorkomotive podcast. Jimmy Doolittle, of course, would become a national hero in World War II. He kind of already was a national hero because of his exploits in airplanes, but it was in the early stages of World War II when the famed Doolittle raid was staged, uh, bombing the city of Tokyo, sending a message to Japan that the United States was uh, down for business when it came to fighting the war. And it was a daring raid, a raid in which his planes only had enough fuel to make a one-way trip. They basically crash-landed all the planes in China. Some of the men made it, some didn't. Doolittle, of course, survived. And as that was one of the most harrowing experiences of his life, this is a guy who had kind of made a living on harrowing experiences. A brilliant man, an engineer, uh, trained at MIT, We'll get into his background as we start telling this story about his role in flying one of the coolest, if not one of the most deadly airplanes ever designed, a machine known as the GBR-1. He did that in 1932, but we have to move back a little bit into the 1920s to set this story up, and we need to talk about what the GB stands for, what the GBR-1 was, and why airplanes were really the premier hot rods of the 1920s and 30s. We look back at the automotive industry and we look back at the age of the 1900s, the teens, and the early 20s, and we know that there were hundreds of manufacturers of cars in the United States. Basically, every medium and small-sized city had somebody making automobiles or had somebody making something for automobiles. In many ways, the same thing was going on in aviation, maybe not as in quite a grand scale, but it was happening all over the place. And there was a small company in Springfield, Massachusetts, known as the Granville Brothers Aircraft Company. They were located at Springfield Airport, which no longer exists. It's now a shopping center. But the Granville Brothers Aircraft Company began as an aircraft repair and maintenance facility. And the Granville Brothers decided that uh, they could make more money if they were um, building airplanes as well. So the Granville Brothers began to build airplanes. They actually bought an old dance hall Believe it or not, they started their operation. Their maintenance operation was in an airplane hangar, of course, at the airport, but their airplane construction business was inside of this dance hall in Springfield. And the Granville brothers had some interesting ideas about how they were going to go about this this business they were in. They were not really in, in the business or interested in making you know, pedestrian-style planes. They wanted to make race planes because airplane racing much like auto racing, was the way that you grew your brand in this early part of the aviation industry. 
the fastest planes got the headlines, the headlines got you sales, and the sales helped you to keep your company afloat. Founded in 1925, the Grantville Brothers guys began building planes right about 1929. And we know that between 1929 and 1934, at the height of the Granville Brothers' success, um, it was the depths of the Depression in the United States. So it's even more kind of astonishing that these guys started an, air, an airplane manufacturing company uh, when the economy of the United States and the world was so deep into the tank. The very first airplane these guys built was called the Model A, and it was a, a biplane. It's pretty fast. Uh, they built nine of those. Over the course of the history of the company, they built about 24 planes total, but nine of them were the Model A biplanes. And these Model A biplanes um, were able to kind of help buoy the company and uh, financially back their racing efforts, at least for a time. One of the things we need to get right off the bat here is that out of the 24 planes that the Grantville brothers constructed, uh, 16 of them uh, are have been known to crash or have been recorded as to have crashed over the course of their life. Now, you can't necessarily blame them on this, and it's going to be a running theme through this story. We can't blame the Granville brothers uh, for the 16 out of 24 crashes, at least all of them, because as these planes are so easy to acquire, and as people had the money to do it, the level of talent that was spread in the pool of pilots was pretty varied. So there was a lot of pilot error crashes that were made here, because frankly, anybody could walk in and buy an airplane if you had the money, and you didn't really have to have any sort of advanced licensing or training or anything. You could just kind of get in the thing and go out there and try to be a flying ace. So that means that crashes were uh, not uncommon, and a lot of the crashes were due to pilot error and certain certainly inexperience. So by 1930, um, things are kind of getting tight for the Grantville brothers. They, you know, this the short window in which they exist. They're making money. They're losing money. It is a, a tough business to keep em people employed. The maintenance side of things is kind of falling off a little bit because the Great Depression is putting the clamp on on a lot of the recreational flying that people have been doing and people will continue to do. This being said, they decide to really put their efforts behind building a racing airplane. And the first racing airplane that they decide to build, they have to find a pilot for it. And the pilot they end up finding is a, uh, a talented guy named Lowell Bales. So Bales is a um, well-recognized pilot. He's kind of their house guy. And in 1930, the GB uh, Super Sportster line is born. And the Super Sportsters are planes that are dedicated race planes. And they built the finished the first one of these in 1931 to race at an event called the Thompson Trophy. Thompson Manufacturing would become a company known as TRW, and it became a massive industrial manufacturing conglomerate. But back in the early 30s, it was the Thompson Company, and they sponsored the Thompson Trophy, which was an air racing trophy uh, given out at the air races in Cleveland, Ohio, the biggest ones in the country at this time. So they build this super sportster. They call it the Model Z. It has a 535 horsepower Pratt & Whitney engine. It's a single wing airplane with a big radial engine up front making 535 horsepower. And the car went 267, rather the plane went 267 miles an hour in 1931 at this Thompson Trophy race, setting top speed of the event and picking up $7,500 in prize money. The other thing it did was actually to, it actually won the, the pylon race itself. So not only did it get the top speed bonus, Lowell Bales flew this plane to a victory. 
Now, this is the type of publicity that the Granford brothers desperately needed. And Bales, you know, talked pretty freely about the airplane and said it was not the easiest thing in the world to fly. It was uh, kind of a radical design at the time. The, the plane was very squat. It was very narrow. Um, it was not really built for uh, ease of flying. You really had to know what you were doing behind the controls. So the 267 mile an hour speed kind of lured the Grantville guys into this idea of grabbing the land plane speed record. So the land plane speed record and the seaplane speed record were two different things at this time. And seaplanes uh, had always held the speed record for aircraft during this era of history. And the main reason is they could do things design-wise with a seaplane that you couldn't get away with on the ground because there weren't a lot of great airports yet. There weren't a lot of very long runways. So the seaplanes are always faster, but the land plane record was certainly a big thing to grab. So they say, okay, we're going to take the same plane, and the only thing we got to do here is just uh, crank up the horsepower and pick up some speed. So they're only a few miles an hour off. They go back to Pratt & Whitney. They say, hey... Uh, we got this 535 horsepower radial, but you guys make that Wasp, an engine called the Wasp Senior, which makes 750 horsepower. Now, this is a supercharged uh, radial engine, nine-cylinder. And so, Brad and Whitney says, yeah, we'd love the publicity. Brad and Whitney at this time is kind of a young up-and-coming company. So, if they can power, they've already powered a Thompson Trophy winner. Now, if they can power the world's fastest land plane, this is going to be good for their business, and they're going to sell engines. So... We have the uh, the Grantville brothers decide to load her up and take the plane to Michigan. That's where they're going to complete these speed runs. They're going to be under the watchful eye of whatever the sanctioning body is at the time. They have the news cameras set up, and everything's good. So, very first run, Lowell Bales goes hauling through over 280 miles an hour, and everything looks really good. Unfortunately, they claim that he broke some sort of viol he had some sort of violation in this first run. They didn't count it. They refused to count it. And there was a lot of different factors when you set these speed records at the time. They didn't let you dive into it. You had to be on like a very kind of flat plane and you had to be at maximum of 50 meters above the ground. Maximum. So you had to be at like 150 feet off the ground, which is a scary prospect in a Cessna, let alone a 800 horsepower plane with little stubby wings. It's very difficult to fly. So Bales lands the plane after this, and they say, hey, um, sorry, th that didn't count. So they say, okay, so they reload the plane up, they fuel it back up again, and Bales goes back up in the air. Now, I mentioned that they refueled the plane. There is video of this incident, and, well, I'll let the audio tell the tale for itself. In 1931, Lowell Bales, a racing pilot, took one to challenge the speed record for land planes held by the French at 278 miles an hour. On his first attempt, he reached 281 miles an hour, but was denied the official record because the margin was not large enough. So he went out again. This time, he reached 300 miles an hour. Bales was killed instantly. Not a good day for the Grantville brothers. Not a good day for Lowell Bales, of course. Uh, very kind of crazy incident there. So what happened? What happened was when they refueled the airplane, this is an incredible story. They refueled the airplane, and unfortunately they failed to completely affix the cap of the fuel tank. So as Bales is in this 300-mile-an-hour streak 
the fuel cap comes off, shatters the front glass, hits him in the face, and either kills him on impact or knocks him unconscious. He rips back on the stick, and it snaps the wings off the plane, and it crashes into the ground. The only reason that anybody knows how this order of events happened was because of the news camera footage, and apparently the guys at, at Grantville Brothers studied this footage just nonstop. They, they were obsessed with figuring out the reason that this happened. And as much great publicity as you get for winning an event like the Thompson Trophy, for proving that you have this incredibly fast plane, you lose a lot of that when your ace pilot gets killed on camera in your airplane. This was a time in history, just like in auto racing, where when stuff happened like this, it wasn't time to pack up your tent and go away. It was time to figure out what happened and then make something better and faster. So when Bales gets killed, the guys didn't really decide to stop doing what they were doing. They decided that they need to build another plane. And the problem became they needed to get it ready for the Thompson Trophy in 1932, and now the clock was ticking. They didn't have a pilot, and they didn't have a plane. They didn't just want to rebuild what they did last year because they figured that everybody else would advance the program. So what they came up with was a new strategy, and what they came up with was a airplane, the end product of which, known as the GBR-1, that would become one of the most iconic aircraft ever built. And we need to talk about their design process, their philosophy, and how the GBR-1 would make the plane that Lowell Bales was flying seem like a Cadillac in comparison. So the Granville Brothers Airplane Company had a couple of big things going for it. The first of which was a guy named Howell Pete Miller, who was their chief engineer. And he was a guy that had a lot of really kind of uh, forward-looking, advanced, almost revolutionary ideas in aircraft design. And the second was a guy named Zanford Granville, who was the founder of the company. They called him Granny. So if you hear the reference to Granny during the story at all made by the players involved, they're talking about Zanford Granville. The reason Granville is, is a great leader here is because he stays out of the way of Pete Miller. And when Miller kind of suggests certain things that other people may balk at or be scared of or be, be fearful of attempting, Granville encourages him and encourages his ideas. The big thing to think about here about 1932 is that, you know, that th there's there's brilliance on both sides of this equation. You have a, a few, a very small handful of pilots that could potentially fly this plane that's going to get built successfully. And you have a couple of people that only have the guts to even design and produce this thing. And the magic of this story is the fact that the 100% the correct person found the 100% correct plane. So let's talk about this plane that gets designed. Miller was uh, a young guy. He was not that far out of college when he started working on the GBR-1. And we're guessing, or at least I'm guessing anyway, that he worked pretty cheap. And uh, that these guys didn't have a lot of money at the time. And Miller, being a young guy, probably with the prospect of having his ideas and theories executed in the flesh, he was very uh, happy about this idea of working for GB and, and, and making this plane. So the, the guys decided not just to build one plane, but two. They would build a GBR-1 and a GBR-2. And what's kind of backwards is the R1 was the more gnarly of the two. The GBR2 was designed to be a distance racer for an event called the Bendix Cup, which was a cross-country race. So that one had a slightly smaller engine and had a slightly different design. Generally the same, but slightly different to be more of a long-distance racer. 
but the R1 was basically the dragster of the two of them. It was designed for the short-style air races, and it was designed for maximum speed and horsepower. Once again, the guys go back to Pratt & Whitney, and they say, hey, uh, we just heard about this new R1340 radial that you came up with. How about we uh, get one of those? This is an engine that supercharged made somewhere in the neighborhood of 850 horsepower, and the Pratt & Whitney R130 or R1340 Wasp 1344 cubic inches of just awesomeness. It's a single row, nine cylinder radial engine, has a 5.75 inch bore, 5.75 inch stroke. They made 35,000 of these things, and it was a huge, huge factor in uh, World War II and in 1930s and 40s aviation. The 1340 was uh, just an amazing engine. So this thing is uh, 67 inches long, and the diameter is 51.75 inches. So uh, it weighs about 930 uh, pounds, and it's two valves per cylinder and supercharged. So when we start talking about the dimensions of the airplane, remember that the, the length of this plane uh, is largely, and the diameter of this plane is largely determined by the size of this massive radial engine that makes all this big old horsepower. So when you see the side profile, the GBR1, and I do encourage you to look at the photos, uh, go look at some photos, and just G-E-E-B-E-E-R-1. You'll see the pictures of this stubby, short plane that is basically like Art Arfons' land speed car was a jet engine with four wheels. This is basically a giant radial engine with wings. And the basic design, which this sounds hilarious, but it's true, that this is one of the first racing planes that was ever designed in a wind tunnel. Right? I mean, you think it's just basic. You put a plane in the wind tunnel. Well, wind tunnel usage and wind tunnel, the understanding of a wind tunnel was something that in 1932 wasn't necessarily um, widely known. It wasn't widely used. A lot of guys just designed stuff on their own concepts, their own basic knowledge of what they thought was aerodynamic and good. Miller and Granny Granville go to NYU and they work for three days with a quarter scale model of this airplane. In the, in the wind tunnel. And what they find out is that they want to create this teardrop-shaped plane. So front to back, it's going to be very bulbous and wide in the front because of the engine, but it's going to taper very quickly in the back and become this beautiful teardrop shape. They're going to take the pilot's area and move him all the way back. He's going to have a very uh, rearward-style seating position so he can see the pylons that he needs to fly around during the air races. He's also going to have very little visibility when he's navigating this plane on the ground. It's going to be very difficult to land this plane because you can't really see anything uh, to the left and right of you or below you, of course, because of where you're sitting. Lastly, this plane is going to have very small, short wings. And the small, short wings, of course, you're trying to create speed. You're trying to minimize the drag on the, on the plane as it goes through the air. And this all adds up to giant engine, very short airplane, very small wings add up to something that even these guys know is going to be very difficult to control. It's going to require the right pilot. This is, as I mentioned, an airborne fuel altered because of the physical and physics level problems that it presents. The dimensions of the GBR1 airplane are as follows. The airplane is 17 feet 8 inches long. Entirely, entire length, 17 feet 8 inches a 1973 Cadillac is 18.9 feet long. So this plane is shorter than a 1973 Cadillac. The entire wingspan is only 25 feet across. So the plane is 18 feet long, and it has these little stubby wings that are only 12 and a half feet long, basically, on either side, a little bit less than that. 
It sits eight feet, two inches high, and it weighs 1,840 pounds empty. It weighs 2,415 loaded with fuel and has a maximum takeoff weight of 3,075 pounds all in. So, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that this thing is going to be, uh, this thing is going to be a handful. It has a flying range of 925 miles. It can go 2.14 hours at full throttle before the tank runs dry, or it can go 3.65 hours at cruising speed before the tank runs out. The plane is going to be constructed of the materials of the time. It's going to be made out of things like wood and some aluminum and some cloth, and it, it is incredible to think what these airplanes were made out of. And again, weight is a, weight is a factor, weight is a concern, Minimizing the mass using the lightest possible materials that they can find, the most aerodynamic materials that they can form and shape, and they have to build this thing on a budget. So not only is it a wild design and dangerous to fly, it is also made with very rudimentary parts and pieces. It's very well thought out in terms of how it's going to go fast, but as far as usability and safety, well, those things took a, not just a backseat, those things were in a trailer or a caboose on the end of a very long train. Who is the guy that's going to fly this thing, and how is he chosen to fly it? Believe it or not, Jimmy Doolittle got this job because of a plane crash. Let's talk about that next. In 1932, there was really no bigger rock star in the world of aviation than Jimmy Doolittle. In the 1920s, Doolittle was a pioneering pilot and a pioneering, pioneering air racer as well. He was trained as a pilot during World War I, and he was one of those guys that, from the moment he got involved with airplanes, it was almost like he had been put on this earth to do things with airplanes and to evolve aviation. After World War I ended, he stayed in the service, and he flew surveillance missions along the Mexican border for the United States military. Uh, not a very, um, not a very daring-sounding thing, but you're talking about flying rickety old planes in remote places uh, where mistakes would basically guarantee your own death. So it was as dangerous a job as about anybody had during that time in American history. He was promoted through the ranks, um, was made a lieutenant. Uh, then he went and basically attended a lot of different schools. And he left the service in the mid-1920s and went back to college. But during his, his time in the early 20s, as a military pilot, he set and did a lot of neat things. In 1922, he made the first transcontinental flight in less than 24 hours going by himself. He flew 21 hours straight, only refueled the plane one time. He went to MIT, became a doctorate in aeronautical engineering, and then later in the 1920s, he is credited with doing some pretty amazing things. So in 1925, he won an event called the Schneider Trophy. Now we're talking about the Thompson Trophy for this particular broadcast, which is an air race held in Cleveland. The Schneider Trophy was an air race for seaplanes. Seaplanes, as I mentioned before, were the fastest planes in the world. In 1925, he won that. Later on in the 20s, he became the first person in the world to ever perform an outside loop in an airplane. He then later became the first pilot in the world to ever complete a blind takeoff and landing. I'll get into that in a second. He, as I mentioned, the first to fly across country in less than 24 hours, and then the first to do it in less than 12 hours, and the first person to ever fly from Ottawa, Canada to Mexico City through Washington, D.C., 
in the span of one day. Hit all three capitals in that one-day span. And I mentioned the Doctorate of Engineering from MIT, which is almost a, which is almost a, another whole side story in and of itself. But when we talk about a guy like Doolittle, this was a guy who was doing very daring and courageous things, but he was doing them with a level of knowledge. It wasn't just craziness or daredevil, uh, daredevil work that he was putting in. He understood the physics and the mechanics behind what he was doing, which makes him either even more brave or completely crazy. Because it's one thing to be a, a daredevil pilot that's just going to rip the stick up and see what happens when you pull an outside loop. It's another thing to be the guy that understands the amount of strain on the wings, the amount of horsepower the engine needs, the amount of engineering uh, prowess aeronautically that the craft needs to have in order to perform this mission. So that's the real brilliance of Jimmy Doolittle. It's not just the guts, it's also the brains as well. One of the things Doolittle was very passionate about was instrument flying. And as I mentioned, he is the only guy, or I should say he's the first guy that ever completed a blind takeoff and landing. And to Doolittle's military training and to his pilot training, he knew that it was pretty easy to get disoriented in an airplane. And he also knew that the instruments never lie to you about any of this stuff. The altimeter never lies. The different instruments in the plane always tell you the truth, so long as they're installed correctly and will sometimes help a pilot get himself out of a jam that he doesn't even really know that he's in. So to prove how absolutely essential it is to become proficient in instrument flying, they blacked out the cockpit of his airplane, he took it off blind, and he landed the plane blind without ever seeing the outside world. And again, an incredible, gutsy guy. On top of all this, we can kind of thank him for high-octane aviation gasoline, um, the fuel of hot rodders for many years. After 1930, when he had left the service and he was doing private work in the private sector and industry and aviation, he went to Shell Oil and said, hey, um, you know, we want to make more power of these engines, but we need gasoline that has higher compression or higher octane so we can run more compression and do more um, kind of strainful things on the engine without having detonation problems. And so it was Shell Shell Oil that took on this project and really uh, was the first to go face first, head first, if you will, into high octane aviation gasoline. So the GBR1 is being constructed in Springfield, and the Grant, Grantville brothers are known for having fast airplanes. Jimmy Doolittle is going to race in the 1932 Thompson Trophy event, but Jimmy Doolittle has a problem. He has his own airplane. He has no intention of flying for the Granville Brothers at this point. He is instead testing out his machine. His machine is a biplane called the Super Solution, and it's a plane that he had raced the year before. He had had some good success with it, and the fact that it had done so well the year before, he knew it wasn't necessarily going to be a leader of the pack, but he also knew it wasn't outclassed. So what does Doolittle do to improve his plane? He comes up with an innovation he comes up with the idea of retractable landing gear. Pretty good idea, right? Now, back in the day, they didn't have the hydraulics and all the different electronic servos and stuff that we have today, so his was on a crank. He would take the plane off, and he would manually crank the landing gear up, and he figured taking the drag from the gear away um, would make the plane faster. A little bit heavier, of course, but it should make the plane faster in the air with that landing gear tucked up underneath it. So just a couple of months before the event, Doolittle's up in the air, he's making his test runs, he's got his 500 horsepower Super Solution plane ripping around, and he decides, okay, time to come in. Well, he tries to crank the landing gear down, and the problem is 
the air rushing under the plane doesn't allow him. When he's had the plane on the ground up on the jacks, it was real easy to crank this thing up and down. But as he's trying to turn the crank to force the gear down, the air pressure up on the bottom of the plane and the air pressure of the of the uh, the, the pressure of the air against the gear he's trying to force down, he can't crank it down. So for two hours, as he says, he cried to get it down, couldn't do it, was you know pulling the plane up and down, cranking like crazy, it wouldn't work. And so finally, he just had to do the one thing he did not want to do, which was to belly land the airplane. He did it successfully. The plane actually was pretty well intact, but it messed up the bottom of the plane. It messed up the propeller. The engine sucked up a lot of garbage. And he knew at this point that he was absolutely not going to be able to race that plane at the Thompson Trophy. Four days after the crash and the the old saying, uh, bad news travels fast, four days after he crash-landed his plane, he gets a call from Granville Brothers. And they say, hey, we got, uh, we got this plane over here you may want to come take a look at. You got nothing to fly. What do, what do you think? And again, Doolittle remembers that these guys had dominated the 31 race. He does know that Bales was killed in one of their planes in a very public way. He does understand, after things being explained to him and shown different footage, that the accident was not necessarily a failure of the airplane itself. Structurally, it was basically a, um, you know, basically a, a one-off freak accident. So he flies to Springfield, Massachusetts, and he goes to take a look at the airplane. And as the Granville brothers roll this plane out in front of him, Jimmy Doolittle is standing there looking things over. And the plane's beautiful. It's red and white, has a scallop paint job on the front of it. You know, it just looks really, really cool. And Doolittle's nervous looking at this thing. You know, the plane had been dubbed the flying silo by the by the aviation press because of its big blunt front end. It has those little tiny wings and it is a more stripped-down version of the plane that killed Bayless with a lot more horsepower. Just looking at the plane, Doolittle knew that it was going to be a very difficult plane to fly. And there was one test flight of this plane made before uh, Doolittle saw it or got into it, made by a guy named Russell Boardman, who was another well-respected distance flyer. A guy that certainly Doolittle would have had respect for Russell Boardman because of his accomplishments. And so basically, uh, Boardman had kind of described it back as being it, quote-unquote, extremely hot to handle. And it was a very quick flight that Borderman had taken and had enough fun in that plane, put it on the ground and said, yeah, this thing is uh, this thing's a whole lot to, to deal with. So as Doolittle looks at the plane, he describes it as all engine with minuscule wings and a bomb-like fuselage. That was his kind of scientific description. He gets in the plane after looking things over, Checks it out, flies up in the air. Jimmy Doolittle makes a couple of circles of the Springfield Airport, and then off he goes. To where? Jimmy Doolittle flew the plane, flew the plane straight to Cleveland. He got in it, liked the way it felt, and didn't wait around. He flew the plane from Springfield, Massachusetts, to Cleveland in less than two hours, and he sent back a telegram to the the, the Granville brothers and said, "Landed in Cleveland, okay, Jim." So they're in the Thompson Trophy races now, and Jim Doolittle flew the plane straight from there. Pretty amazing stuff that he, he was so comfortable so quickly in this machine that was so, so dangerous. 
not only was the plane dangerous, it had also become famous at this point because of all the press it had gotten, because of the Bale's death and then the understanding that they were going to build something even crazier and faster, and the fact that Doolittle is going to fly it. This was big news. Listen to this audio from the 1932 Thompson races as Mr. Jim Doolittle himself, as a young man, describes the airplane and what he plans to do with it. Course would be Jimmy Doolittle, whose own Laird Super Solution biplane was out of action with landing gear problems. The high speed is expected to be in the vicinity of 300 miles an hour. The landing speed about 90. In spite of the high speed range and the high speed of the plane, it handles very well in the air and on the ground. The paragraphs have been installed, and uh, in the next few minutes we expect to make an attempt on the world speed record. Ah, yes, make an attempt on the world speed record. That's the good stuff, right? The Thompson races were broken into a couple of parts, and the day before the main event, which was the actual planes racing in a giant 10-mile circle around some floating pylons, was the Shell Speed Dash. And we know that Doolittle had a relationship with Shell already because of the high-octane gasoline that he worked with the company, kind of pushing them to develop. The other thing he wanted to do was collect the money from the Shell Speed Dash, and this was a very simple proposition. It was basically like a time trial at a drag strip. You circled around, you followed the rules in terms of not diving, just like we talked about with the low bales crash, and then you just put that thing on the deck and you hauled as much ass as you could at a very low altitude to try to set the land speed or the, the, land, air, the land airplane speed record. Again, you had seaplane speed record and the land airplane speed record. How did he do? Listen to this. Watching the real show today, starting with Jimmy Doolittle, the human bullet. A new record, 293 miles an hour. Awesome is that when you think about the sound and the fury of that little airplane roaring very low to the ground in front of the massive grandstand in Cleveland. I mean, there were tens of thousands of people there. And what those people were seeing is the fastest at the time was the fastest land-based object ever built. There wasn't uh, a car. There wasn't um, a train. There wasn't any object that lived on Earth on land. Not a seaplane, because those were faster. But in terms of the people in that grandstand, they were seeing the fastest thing man had ever built that was uh, terrestrially based, right? Not on the ocean. We're talking terra firma, terra firma based airplane that was going just under 300 miles an hour. And Jimmy Doolittle was confidently at the controls. Now, he may have been confidently at the controls, but as we hear Jimmy tell us in this audio from way back, now this is... This audio, I believe, was made somewhere in the 1960s, early 70s. But this is Jimmy Doolittle, in his own words, talking about flying at the 1932 Thompson Trophy races. The audio you heard at the very start of the show was Doolittle as a very old man. This is a younger Jimmy Doolittle remembering his adventure in Cleveland in 1932. By 1932, the national air races had become one of the nation's leading sporting events. The crowds were enormous. Spectators always enjoyed acrobatics and wing walking, but what they really came to see were the races. 
particularly the Thompson Trophy Classic. About watching a real show today, starting with Jimmy Doolittle, the human bullet. I won that one in 1932, averaging over 250 miles per hour in the GBR-1. It was the most unforgiving airplane I ever flew. You had to fly it all the time. I love that clip of Doolittle, how he talks about how unforgiving the plane was, just in the same way he talked about it as an older man at the very beginning of the show. One of the things I have not mentioned yet is during a practice flight, when Jimmy Doolittle had flown this plane from Springfield to Cleveland, he then spent some time just making practice flights with it in the days and weeks leading up to the Thompson Trophy. And during one of those flights, he was kind of testing the stability of the airplane, and he was at a pretty good altitude. If he had been down low, we'd be talking about Jimmy Doolittle dying in this plane as we will talk about other people having that problem a little bit later on. But Doolittle was uh, at a fairly high altitude and for a moment kind of let up his concentration and the plane immediately went into two snap barrel rolls and he was able to save it before it augured into the into the ground. So Doolittle from that moment forward knew exactly what he was dealing with here and that was a plane that if you gave up your concentration for even a moment's time would kill you. And as he mentioned in that quote to start the show, it would try to destroy itself and you with it. Understanding that, understanding the fact that this thing is now the fastest land-based object on Earth, it has wowed the crowds at the Thompson Trophy, it has won the Shell Speed Dash, it is now time for race day, and we kind of don't even have to go into a lot of the detail here because the long story short is that he just kicked everybody's ass. I mean, this was not much of a contest. You had some of the planes were capable of running like 260 miles an hour, maybe. Um, do a little you know, qualifies this plane 25 miles an hour faster than the year before. Um, you know, he's qualifying the qualifying the speed somewhere in the 280 zone after he makes that that speed run the day before at 293. So, you know, the speed run was just an absolute head-on run. Whereas this this race is a 10 mile circle around these floating pylons. So. He has so much power. We mentioned the second uh, GB, the R2 that was built. It has less horsepower than the, the R1, so it's not as fast. But over the course of the race, um, Doolittle just absolutely runs away from everybody, laps basically the entire field except for maybe one other plane. And one of the things that's very interesting is something that happens during this race that basically brings an end to the the racing career of Jimmy Doolittle. During the event, of course, Doolittle's family is there watching, and air racing is a very um, dangerous profession, much like auto racing, but I would say even worse at this time in history, if that's possible. So as he's winning this race and just running away from everybody, rocking and rolling, all of a sudden, a black trail of smoke begins appearing from the back of the plane. Now, what this is, is a carburetor adjustment problem. The plane had backfired when they went to start it before the event. It did fire up and run, but when the plane backfired, it knocked one of the carburetors out of adjustment, or it knocked the carburetor out of adjustment, so the plane was basically running pig-rich, and that is why they, people started to see the black smoke trailing behind the plane. Newspaper reporters of the time found Doolittle's wife and kids and basically st sat there and asked them a bunch of questions and took a bunch of photos of them with the expectation that Doolittle was probably going to crash and die in front of everybody in this crowd. It sounds awful and because it is. So the, the newspaper reporters are, oh, do you think, uh, do you think he's going to make it? Do you think he's going to live? They're talking to his kids, asking his kids questions this way. And obviously by the time the race is over, his whole family is like distraught and 
you know, he he is furious at at what's happened once his wife and his kids tell him the story about what this coverage was like. So after the race, very shortly after the race, he says that he's retiring from air racing, which he does. He never races again. And one of the quotes that he gives to the newspaper about air racing is, I've yet to hear anyone engaged in this line of work dying of old age. So it was, you know, it was a recognition of the fact that, hey, this is probably unnecessary risks I need to take in my life. But he was also disgusted by the way his family was treated during that Thompson Trophy race, and he decided that he did not want to subject them to that anymore. We talk about, and we've heard Doolittle say in his own words about how difficult this airplane was to fly. And that is what he said, you know, privately at the time. He definitely talked to the Granville brothers about how, you know, skittish and dangerous and crazy the plane was. But he was a man of honor and a man of uh, um, tact, let's say. So he never mentioned any of the difficulties of this airplane publicly. He wanted to help the Granville brothers, and certainly by winning the race, he did that. And if he then went on and said, well, geez, yeah, I won the race, but the plane tried to kill me the whole time. That would not do a whole lot for their business. And understanding the, the position they were in and needing to um, garner this good publicity to save their company, he basically played along. He played the company line. He would uh, be quoted in the newspaper saying such complimentary things as, you know, she's the finest ship I've ever flown. She's perfect in every respect, and the motor is just as good as it was a week ago. It never missed a beat and has lots of good stuff in it yet. I think this proves the Granville Brothers in Springfield, Massachusetts, build the very best speed ships in America today. So, hey, that's uh, that sounds like he was flying that thing with a you know with a ham sandwich in one of his hands. That he wasn't necessarily fighting for his life up there, but the fact that this little high horsepower, short winged hot rod of the air was was something fun to fly, and it was great, and it was one of the finest planes built in the country. And it goes even further than that because after the race, he sent a really nice telegram to Granny Granville and the team up in Springfield, Massachusetts. Let's hear him read it in his own words. Dear Granny, just a note to tell you that the big GB functioned perfectly in both the Thompson Trophy and the Shell Speed Dash. With sincere best wishes for your continued success, I am as forever, Jim. With this win and picking up the speed record in the airplane, Jimmy Doolittle established himself as... I would argue the premier aviator in the world. There were three major honors that you could win as a pilot during this time, and they were the Thompson Trophy. He clicked that one off in 1932. The Bendix Trophy, which he had won previously, that is the the uh, record for the you know cross country race style event. And there was the Schneider Trophy, which was an air, a rather a seaplane speed and performance mark trophy as well. And Doolittle had effectively completed the Triple Crown by winning all three of these things. So it did make sense for him to step away from this this aviation racing. It, it made sense for him to not really have to subject himself to the dangers of this, what some would consider a frivolous activity. He definitely saw it as an engineering exercise, and he definitely saw it as something that was advancing American aviation, something that he knew for the defensive purposes of the country that would be very important. And to put a little bit of a pinpoint on the Thompson Trophy races, the history of that event is very interesting. It ran from 1929 to 1961. It was not contested in 1940, 41, 42, 43, 44, or 45. Of course, that is the era of World War II. But outside of those years, from 1929 to 1961, it was the biggest, baddest air race in the country. 
And by the time that race was finished in 1961, we're not talking about propeller planes competing anymore. There were guys showing up with jets, and it became a very interesting um, almost battle of defense contractors to show who had the fastest and best jets. I mean, you look at the old videos from this thing in, like, 61, and you see F-104 starfighters, and you see uh, saber jets, and you see all the really cool early kind of fighter planes that were at an air race that we now think of in today's world, we think of air racing as really the Red Bull air races, which are the only thing that happens of this genre anymore. And those are kind of an exhibition and they're cool. And the, the planes are fast and they're awesome. But at the end of the day, this was a national sensational event that if you won, you really, really did something special for your career and for your life. Now, after dominating this race, after announcing his retirement from the world of air racing, let's talk a little bit about the postscript for Jimmy Doolittle. The R1 and its sister planes, we'll talk about that in a short while. But Jimmy Doolittle in 1932 really didn't know he was destined to be more than a legend in civilian aircraft. In 1940, he was called back into active service with the military, having maintained a close relationship with them, doing development work and helping um, work with, the, of course, the burgeoning Air Force, which was then the Army Air Force. He was brought back into the rank of major, and he was brought in immediately with a position of authority in the Air Corps. And his first job was to change air uh, automotive factories from automotive production to airplane production. That was his kind of specialty at that time. As an engineer, as a, a leader and a thinker, he was put on, on top of that task. In 1942, Doolittle was promoted to lieutenant colonel and given the immediate assignment to bomb Japan. He planned it, and then he volunteered to lead it. This is the kind of guy he was. He wasn't just going to sit at a table and develop a plan to send 16 bombers into oblivion and drop bombs on Tokyo. If he was going to make the plan, he was going to ride with the plan, and he was going to suffer or experience its consequences or triumphs firsthand. He was not going to lead from the rear. His plan is executed. 16 B-25 bombers leave the USS Hornet. They all drop their ordnance on Japanese cities, and they head to China some of the crews were captured and killed by the Japanese, but the majority, including Jimmy Doolittle and his crew, were aided by friendly people they found in China, and they lived. It was a raid that didn't really cause a lot of damage in Tokyo. You know, 16 planes dropping bombs, which is a scary and terrifying thought, but it's not something that brings a city to its knees. The one thing it did, though, was show Japan that the United States was ready, willing, and able to defend itself, and it sent a very chilling message to the government of Japan and the populace that we were not going to take this laying down. Secondarily, it was a giant morale boost to the United States and the armed services that we finally um, kind of landed a, a sucker punch back after what had happened at Pearl Harbor. Jimmy Doolittle lived to be 96 years old. He died in 1993. And there are a few people, I think, on planet Earth, especially in, in modern civilization, that have done as much, have, have lived as much as Jimmy Doolittle from from this brilliance of developing procedures and, and, and the ways that we fly airplanes today. A lot of it's rooted in the things he thought of. The mechanical changes that he made, the engineering improvements that he made in aircraft, those are all things. The wartime achievements, the scientific achievements, the engineering stuff. I mean, this guy had a hand in everything, and he was a fearless racer as well. It doesn't get any better than that. He took that path to go into what I would consider a very rare air of legendary Americans and people that have done legendary things for our country. 
On the second side of this story is what happens to Granville Brothers aircraft and what happens to their airplanes. This is, unfortunately, not as good a story. The two planes, the R-1 and the R-2, suffer small crashes over the short time, fairly short time following the 1932 Thompson races. And the R-1 is uh, altered a little bit, changed, lengthened uh, the fuselage by 18 inches, just some slight alterations made, likely on the recommendation of Doolittle in terms of making the plane work better. In 1933, Russell Boardman, who had made one of the initial test flights of the R-1, is flying the plane at the Bendix Trophy event. He makes a fueling stop at Indy. He loads the plane up. He takes off, pulls up on the stick. The plane stalls and then augers itself into the ground, killing Boardman and wrecking the majority of the plane. That leaves the R-2. The R-2 is also involved in a minor accident. The pilot's able to walk away from that one, but the plane has had damage. The guys effectively, in, in one way or another, basically melded these two planes together to make a new aircraft that they call intestinal fortitude. This is crashed by a guy named Roy Miner. Miner was trying to land the plane, could not get it to land, and crashes it upon landing. It needs to get repaired again. This plane has been crashed in one way or another now four times, maybe, maybe more than that. So next, the plane is fixed and it is sold to a guy named Cecil Allen. And Allen decides as much as he likes this plane, he needs to do some things to make it more competitive for the Bendix races and these planes that have been faster in a long distance than this modified hybrid R1-R2. So what Allen decides to do is to modify the fuel tanks. He makes them larger, and he moves them inside the fuselage against the very strong recommendations of both Granville and Pete Miller. They say, please don't do this. The plane is not going to be uh, any easier to fly. In fact, you're probably going to make a bad thing worse if you change where the fuel tanks are. Allen goes ahead with his plan. He is crashed and killed when trying to take off with a couple tanks of fuel effectively on the very first flight he made after altering the plane. It gets worse from here. In 1934, Granny Granville is delivering a Sportster plane to a customer. He crashes the plane and kills when trying to, and is killed when trying to land it. The big problem and the sad thing is here for the Granville brothers is that history shows that they build a lot of airplanes that kill a lot of people. And it is factual. You can't really argue around the fact that their stuff had a pretty high crash and death rate inside of it, especially these high-performance race planes. But I can't really hold that too far against them. The people that bought these planes, the people that flew these planes, were of the mindset and of the nature that they could conquer and they could handle anything. The reality is one guy could basically conquer and handle anything, and his name was Jimmy Doolittle. And that's what makes this particular story to me so special. It is the intersection of the perfect airplane for the perfect guy. It is an imperfect airplane in so many ways, but when the perfect guy is placed in an imperfect machine, that's when the magic happens. In this case, that guy was one of the best pilots who has ever lived, and that thing was one of the most unforgiving high-performance airplanes ever designed. The basic ideas and principles behind the GBR-1 and R-2 were used in different aircraft through history, but with much less dramatic, much, to a much less dramatic level. Those tiny wings that were made at the minimum size to basically have the thing airworthy 
well, you could make them a little bit bigger. And yeah, you'd give up some speed, but you'd have the best of both worlds in some sense. You'd have a little more control without giving up that much more speed. The GBR1 and R2 and the GB Sportster, Super Sportster airplanes were ahead of their time for both the talent of most pilots and for the technology used to build them. If you look at a Wildcat or a Bearcat or a Hellcat airplane from World War II, you will see many of the basic design elements of a GBR1 and R2 put into that form. They're a little more, they're a little longer, they have more wing, they have more horsepower. But overall, those planes are more balanced, and those planes allow pilots that don't have to be on the knife edge every second of every day to perform the duties they needed to perform in war. Many of those ideas came to light a lot earlier than they would have because of the Granville brothers, because of the attention that they got, and because of the performance that their airplanes wrought. Unfortunately, Jimmy Doolittle was the only guy that really could tell the actual story of the GBR-1 and R-2. And to his great credit, as the honorable man that he was, he admitted the fact that this was a plane that was not built for everybody. In fact, it was a plane that was basically built for one guy, and that was him. And this concludes the story of the GBR-1 and R-2, the airborne hot rod from hell that was tamed by a true American hero. I'm going to leave you with one last piece of audio here, and this is the GBR-1 with Jimmy Doolittle at the tiller, making a victory lap at a very low altitude in front of the massive grandstand at the 1932 Thompson Air Races. A moment of triumph and a moment of unbelievable speed witnessed by tens of thousands of people as this nine-cylinder Pratt & Whitney engine, supercharged as it was, making over 850 horsepower, salutes the crowd and salutes the world of aviation with its beautiful thunder. Doolittle marked his victory with a low pass at full throttle across the finish line. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. I hope that you enjoyed this look back into American aviation history and horsepower with Jimmy Doolittle taming the wild GBR1. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more Dorkomotive. Please visit dorkomotive.com to check out everything that's going on with the podcast. You can see all of our previous episodes and get caught up with the fun that is Dorkomotive. We'll see you next time. <laughs>